good evening, everyone. It's great to be here. And I'm excited to uh, get to kind of have a full circle of Labrie. I studied at the Swiss Labrie in 2012. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, it was a, a very pivotal time in my life where I was kind of giving Christianity one last look before ditching it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I studied Christendom and patriarchy were the main questions that I was dealing with at Labrie. And um, it was a, definitely a place where I could ask honest questions and learn to embrace mystery, learn to forgive, and um, learn of a Christ who is far more wild and beautiful and alive than I had ever known before. So I, Libri became a very pivotal time in my life, um, and it was my worker that encouraged me to continue my studies on, and so I went to Regent College and did a master's in theology um, and wound up pastoring. That was not something I was thinking of doing vocationally, <laughs> um, but it's really neat to see how this all kind of works out. Um, I'm currently taking a post-master's in spiritual care and really enjoying that. I, I love to continually learn and study, and so when Clark asked me to come and lecture, I was like, oh good, I can think about something fun, <laughs> and uh, something that's not a sermon or something I would normally think about. So um, tonight we have a chance to give our attention fully to one subject. That's something I love about Labrie too, is you come and you're, it's a bit of a mind warping experience. Whoa, this person's talking about something I had never even thought of before. And so that might be the case for you tonight. And uh, if it is, I, I hope that you'll enjoy what, I'm, what we're going to talk about. So I'll lecture for about 45 minutes. And then this is my experience at Labrie. I'm not sure if this is what you guys do here, but when I would take in lectures um, at the Swiss Labrie, uh, they would go on for like 40 minutes, an hour, or whatever, and then the dialogue would start. So you are welcome to ask me questions, but I would rather it be uh, inter-dialogue with one another. And uh, we're going to explore some questions. I'm not, I'm, I'm, at least I hope that in lecture, I'm not going to intentionally answer the question for you. It's, that's kind of the point of the dialogue afterwards. I'm just going to give us a parameter and a framework and some language to think about this. So, tonight I want to invite you to explore a simple question that, as a musician myself, has haunted me for years and evoked many subsequent questions. And the question is simply this, is music free? And by free, I mean, can music be bad? Can it be corrupted? Can music heal? Does it need to be redeemed? Is music always and forever a free oblation of love, of beauty, of goodness, of truth? I'm going to invite you to think with me about music in some broad terms, and then we're going to take a big chunk of tonight's lecture to think about the ramifications of what we've just talked about with these broad terms through a difficult historical lens as a case study. So, with the broad strokes, I suppose you can imagine that we are going to create a canvas through which to see and understand one of the most beguiling and bewitching forms of art, the gift of music. Take a moment to think about some of the music or musicians who have influenced you. Think about going into a movie theater where even if you didn't know what was playing, you could still pick up a sense of whether the film would be comedic or dramatic based on the opening motifs of the music. Think about the folk songs, the protest songs, 
the love songs that have shaped how our culture thinks and believes and acts today. Think about the music that you love the most and why you love it. Think about music that lasts well beyond the lifetime of its composer. And what about the effect that music has on us to calm, to shape memory, to form identity, to persuade action? In the past, there have been great philosophers and theologians who have written about music extensively, arguing for both its power and for its freedom. Those are two profound words, I think. And with freedom and power, we first must ask if they are in opposition to one another. Can they coalesce? Is music always free? Must music be powerful to endure? And even more importantly, if music can be manipulated to use its strength for ill, can that music itself be redeemed? Or is it forever cursed, forever diabolical? Now, a word on our traveling companions. I'm going to be using Plato's ideas to argue about the power of music. Then we're going to look at the theologian Karl Barth to set the tone for the freedom of music. Our case study is, for many of us, perhaps in a genre of music that is unfamiliar, but the history of the, the, history, the music affected is very real and present to us. So let's dive into our first topic, the power of music. And Liz, do you want to go to the next one? Mm -hmm. We actually have the questions. There you go. And you can go right to the next one. <laughs> okay. Plato, dear old Plato, articulated the concept of music as a vast cosmic harmonization, becoming the gateway for education, tranquility, unity, and rationality. Just as he saw the universe itself being built on mathematical certainty, so too music was part of that cosmic certainty, creating beauty and peace. Plato defined music as the means to awaken the inner vision of the soul. But Plato was not primarily concerned with instrumental music when he said this. Rather, he saw the power of music to lay in its marriage to language with the use of choral music. Plato specifically saw choral music as rudimentary to all educations, where in Plato's Law he says, got the quote here, the whole choral art is also in our view the whole of education, and of this art, rhythms and harmonies form the part which has to do with the voice. We see here that music carries a power that can awaken, shift, and unify humanity. <laughs> and as Plato holds, Choral art begets inner training of the soul, whose effect can be used for good or ill. I think it's fascinating that Plato necessarily ties music's power to language when you consider that singing comes before language in the evolutionary process. Plato had a very specific bracketing of music he calls cosmic harmonization. He places this music, this cosmic harmonization, with the other four sacred sciences. So you have arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. He does this because the relationship of music to mathematics made the connection between music and cosmic order, and pointed to music as an audible case in point of the harmony of the universe. 
Because music is firmly based in the basic mathematical construction of two to one, or tone to semitone, its entire framework is logical, mathematical, and strategic. Let's just have a look here. If you're not a musician, I assume this is the most basic form I could find it in, and I'll show you on the piano. So these are each called notes or tones. If you're American, you would call them um, whole tones. Uh, and if you're Canadian, oh, I may, may have been getting this wrong. Whole steps and half steps if you're American. Mm -hmm. the Canadians call them whole tones and semitones. <laughs> okay? So C to C sharp is a semitone. One, uh, it would be considered. And then C to D would be a whole tone two. Okay? So if you uh, were to play, we're going to go over to the piano. If you were to play a scale that was all one, 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 it would sound like this. That's also the chromatic scale if you practice music, right? Um, if you were to do a scale that was all on twos of whole tones, it would sound like this. And all of a sudden we're transported into like a science kind of fiction thing. It sounds like that, doesn't it? So our major scale, or the diatonic scale, is a combination of two to one. Alright, so you can look on the screen, there's C, and then we're going to go with two, and then another two. So I'm stepping over, I'm only playing the white notes, and if I do it all, it's going to be C, two, two, one, two, 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 one, or whole tone, whole tone, semitone, whole tone, whole tone, whole tone, semitone. There are, if you count all of the white and black notes, there's a total of 12. So that's where we get 12 major keys in music, because it just follows that very mathematical diatonic scale of tone, tone, semitone, tone, 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 semitone. In its most basic element, that's how music is so mathematical and logical. Coming back to Plato, though, the Timaeus, his account of creation, is a highly developed expression of the connection between music and cosmic order. It is based on the presupposition that the universe is intelligible. That is, it is orderly and harmonious, not chaotic or random. Therefore, it must have been created by an intelligent being, a god. When the god created the soul of the world, Plato taught, he gave it a musical, mathematical structure. When he made the human soul, he gave it the same structure. He, quote, mixed it in the bowl, the same bowl, as Plato put it. Audible music should also have the same structure, according to Plato. In fact, he said that hearing was given to help us retune our souls that have lost their harmony. I think that's quite a beautiful turn of phrase. Can you say that again? Hearing was given to help us retune our souls that have lost their harmony. Let's go to the next quote, Liz. This is Plato in the Timaeus. All audible music was given us for the sake of harmony, which has motions akin to the orbits in our soul, and which, as anyone who makes intelligent use of the arts knows, is not to be used, as is commonly thought, to give irrational pleasure, but as a heaven-sent ally in reducing to order and harmony any disharmony in the revolutions within us. To keep this from getting too complex, as Plato quickly does, <laughs> let's simplify this by stating that Plato saw music as being part of the mathematical order 
of the universe. If music is mathematical, logical, and coherent, it must also be intelligible and didactic in nature. This is the place in which music has its power for Plato. Music aligns our souls with order and creates harmony. Plato is really building the case that music serves a purpose, that it can be instructive and in fact must be instructive. We can narrow all of Plato's thoughts down to three arguments. First, Plato maintains that the standard for good music ought not to be its ability to give pleasure to the soul, but rather music must fit into a rigid standard of rhythmical and harmonious movement that is, quoting Plato, associated with spiritual or bodily excellence. Second, Plato sees music as needing to access three points, clear delineation, correct copying, and the moral value of the representation. Notice how stringent those points are. Third, Plato argues that music must have specific, that music has specific genres that cannot be jumbled together, but must maintain a rigid sterility between each other. I think that's hilarious because I, I don't know if you guys know Jacques Lussier's music. You've got to look him up. He's a, he's a great 20th century musician and he combines Bach with jazz and he mixes it all together and it's this great big conglomerative messy thing and I love it. I think Plato would roll over in his grave if he heard Jacques Lussier play though. So what he's doing, Plato, is relegating music to the realm of the instinctive bodily responses and therefore only allowed it for contexts which evoked positive responses such as courage as a natural response to upbeat marching music. That is, he rejects that music could be used to express emotions that are not tied to a purposeful end. Music that focuses simply on lament, for example, is rejected by Plato as encouraging self-indulgence and self-pity. Plato was such a fan of military music, particularly marching music, that would instruct a group of soldiers, helping them keep time and build courage. Now, there's great good that can come from Plato. First, when we understand that music is tied to the harmonization of the cosmos, this opens the door for how music might bring harmony and tranquility to our own souls. It also speaks of an inherent beauty in heaven, akin to the poetic verses in Job where it speaks of creation coming into order by the voice of the morning stars singing together. <laughs> Finally, we also pick up on the didactic purpose of music as instructive for the soul. The church fathers jumped on this concept and heartily recommended choral music as a fundamental part of the church service, seeing how music could still and instruct the soul. I don't want us to jump away from this too quickly because there's great goodness in recognizing the Christian Platonic synthesis, especially as it relates to our vast storehouse of hymnody and psalmody, which we really have Plato to thank for. But what I want us to consider is the implications of Plato's thought that music is only to be used in a didactic, in a teaching way. What does this mean if we believe that music must be intrinsically tied to a free God? What Plato is arguing for is the use of music, and I intentionally placed the word use 
in this sentence that heightens the mind and vision away from the rest of the body. This is key. There is a separation of mind and body in Plato's approach to music because he argues that it speaks from outside of us, from the other realm of the cosmos, and that it is only to be used for instruction and not simply for beauty's sake. I personally believe that this leads to a fragmentation of mind, body, and spirit, or even worse, to a sense in which we might say we have a body rather than we are a body. So let's look at a mini case study with Plato to kind of put this into some simple practical terms. What are the implications of the separation of the mind and body? <coughs> Most simply, I believe we see this in pedagogical approaches to music where we force children to read notes before they can do anything else. Heaven forbid that they should just sit at the piano and play or listen to music and then copy it on their own. No, children must learn to read the notes above all else. <laughs> I've taught music to children for many years, and what my experience has been with other teachers that I've known is that while most would not be so bold to say that they agree with this method, but rather that they do not know how to simply play by ear at the piano. And so all they can teach is sight reading and technique and theory. Very few teachers know how to improvise or to form music on their own. So I believe this is the reason why so many kids quit because all that music is for them is target practice where they're looking at notes and repeating, looking at notes and repeating. So we need to ask, is music strictly heavenly, strictly beyond us? Is music just used to teach and instruct and inform? And if this is true, is music then free? All right, now it's really time to come down and ask the question. If music is not just about cosmic harmonization, how is it inseparably part of the goodness of God in creation? We're going to explore this question by delving into the work of one of the 20th century theologians, Karl Barth, who focused on the goodness of creation in much of his writing. I just love this picture of him because he looks so curious and like, oh. Come into my study and let's talk. <laughs> Bart began with laying a foundation for the doctrine of creation in which God creates out of nothing. The Latin phrase is ex nihilo. The creator God voluntarily places himself in a vulnerable position by choosing to call something into existence and thereby limit himself. As God calls creation forth, his own handiwork and creative design leave their unmistakable mark of the closeness of God to his creation. The basis of the Christian narrative knows a God who is incredibly close to his own artistry and yet irreducibly distinct from it. This distinction is clear because God's closeness to creation does not equal pantheism. Rather, creation involves a canonic movement of God in which his self-limitation and self-giving creates the seedbed for relationship. Um, sorry, can you just explain what you mean when God, you said that God limits himself by creating? So he, if he just leaves everything vast and uncreated, the darkness and the day are not separated, by limiting himself, he's going to say, I'm going to create something specific 
and even more so in the limitation of God when he becomes human and takes on flesh. So, creation involves a canonic movement of God in which his self-limitation and self-giving creates the seedbed for a relationship with the incarnation. All that is creative is necessarily imaginative, and so the unimagined becomes imagined. The unbroken silence is broken. The formless becomes formed. Thus, this doctrine of creation holds in tension the reality that God, who is wholly other than his creation, and yet is intimately involved in his creation, not just in its primordial origination, but in its continuing history. In creation, God separates day from night, and in what we might at first think to be a strange turn of phrase, he calls this good. Here we understanding the, se the seeming enigma to our fragile comprehension that God calls even the night good. Bart understands this tenuous certainty when speaking of the eschaton, he argues, When Jesus Christ shall finally return as the Lord and head of all that God has created, it will also be revealed that both in light and shadow, on the right hand and on the left, everything created was very good and supremely glorious. We see this paralleled in the realm of music where minor and major tones are needed to make a full cluster of sound. The major triad is built on a major third and a minor third, exemplifying that dark and light create a tenuous harmony far more succulent than a single tone. Let me just play this for you so you can hear what I'm trying to say. So here's the triad. It's a major triad. Triad. In the most simplistic terms, and I really don't even like teaching kids this, but it, it's helpful. You tell them the major is happy and the minor is sad. I don't like that because I personally love minor and I don't consider it to be sad at all, but it helps distinguish it. So if you have a major triad, there's three notes in it and there's so there's two thirds. From C to E is a third, C to E, three notes. And then from E to G is a third, E, F, G, three notes. Okay, that's why we call it a major or a third. That's a major third. You can even try singing the tone so you can hear that. As opposed to. That's a minor third. Okay? So. Now let's think again of God's self-limitation. Could this be echoed in music? 
we see too that music limits itself to create harmony. Rather than all the tones being sounded at once, if I was a two-year-old and going bang, 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 <laughs> there is a generous waiting, allowing harmonies to form, be formed that are far more beautiful and distinct than the clamorous rush of notes that are thicketed together without design. Mm -hmm. So just, I'll come back to the piano one more time. It's very simple, but like if there's no order to God, <laughs> this is the result, right? But then in the self-limitation, you get something beautiful created because not all the notes are being sounded at the same time. Embracing the reality that we are created beings whom God sees as very good and intended to flourish in this life through sub-creation of our own transforms our perspective. So now all of creation may be seen as art and every act of stewardship, whether you are keeping a garden or raising a child, as a holy imitation of the God who cares for his creation. Thus, art becomes a free gift, offering itself as a lily of the field. Mm -hmm. There's an entire argument we could delve into here about what it means to be sub-creators, but we simply don't have time to address it tonight. So let me invite you to simply hold this idea that God creates, and because we are made in his image, we too are what J.R.R. Tolkien coined sub-creators. God was free to create, not acting out of loneliness, the need to express himself, or to work out a theoretical task. He creates out of freedom and pure delight. Would it not follow then that humankind likewise inherits the ability to create freely? It's art, a sacrament, tracing back to the God who creates from delight. So with Bart, let's look at a mini case study as well through the lens of his favorite composer, Wolfgang Mozart. Bart was an audacious admirer of Mozart, going so far as to include his free and playful music as an argument for the goodness of creation in his massive work, The Dogmatics. Here, Bart argues for the playfulness of the arts and their role in the Christian faith. The base of creation's goodness and the all-consuming nature of God's grace in making every part of his creation good frees us to reconsider our own role in creation as those sub-creators. Bart argues that Mozart, quote, knew something about creation in its total goodness that neither the real fathers of the church nor our reformers nor indeed any other great musicians before and after him either know or can express and maintain as he did. Wow. Very high praise. <laughs> <laughs> Bart believed that Mozart possessed the ability to build from the goodness of the created earth, hearing the harmony of creation to which the shadow belongs but in which the shadow is not one of defeat. Now here's the delightful thing about Mozart. He simply plays at the piano. He doesn't care about an agenda. He's simply making an ablation, simply playing. Bart wrote a delightful little book, which I don't know if you guys have a copy of, but it's hilarious. And in this book, he's commemorating Mozart on his birthday and toasting him. 
And in the book, Bart argues that Mozart's music is an extraordinary example of the playfulness of God because Mozart, because uh, playfulness of God, because Mozart acting as a sub-creator creates music that is at its base, playful, unconcerned, free. If you've listened to any of Mozart's works, you'll pick up on this lightness, this imaginative, this succulent beauty. Bart himself playfully, faithfully started each morning in his study by playing Mozart on his phonograph. I think it's a rather fascinating connection to see that this theologian who wrote exceedingly thick and dense dissertations on theology did so while listening to music that could almost be considered childlike. For myself, when I play Mozart, an inescapable lightness overtakes me. Mozart is unlike Beethoven. He's not, and not just because his compositions are gentler on the performer, but also because their whimsical freedom does not impede the soul, but releases it. He does not push the pianoforte beyond the limits of its time. Instead, he offers new creative possibilities that result in music, which transports the heart with tenacious hope. What is this transportation toward, we may ask? Bart sees that it is a child, the eternal youth, who speaks to us in Mozart's music. Bart argues that, you can put the next one up, please. We come nearer the truth when we consider how this man, while truly mastering his craft and always striving toward greater refinement, never manages to burden his listeners especially not with his creative labors. Rather, he always allows them to participate afresh in his free, let us now say, childlike play. These thoughts of Bart affirm that as we become the little child of whom Christ affectionately spoke, we find ourselves nearer the kingdom than we had imagined. The sub-creating participation of the composer teaches us that as we create, we participate with Christ in his ultimate renewal of all things. Perhaps the complex wonder of Mozart's music is that the light always triumphs over the dark and that even the shadow comes around right in the end. Bart sees this as, quote, a glorious upsetting of the balance, a turning in which the light rises and the shadows fall, though without disappearing, in which the yea rings louder than the ever-present nay. So to tag back again, we have two ideas. One from Plato, that music is other than creation, that it is part of the heavens in an intellectual awakening, a bringing to order that which was chaotic. Music is not part of creation, but is separate from it. Music brings humanity's chaos into order and does so didactically. Then two, from Bart. That music is part of the goodness of creation, springing up from the goodness of God, who is close and yet distinct from what he creates, be it the separation of light from darkness or the forming of humanity from the dust of the ground. As such, music is part of creation and creates both an intelligent and aesthetic oblation that is as free as it is powerful. So is it possible to unite both of these? Power, freedom? I believe it is, but there is a more important question. If music can be used as a great good, 
either to didactically teach us or to give us the gifts of beauty, goodness, and truth, can music also be used for great evil? To answer these questions, let's journey into the life of a composer who used music to affect change in the 20th century. I must admit that to do so, we must delve into my least favorite genre of music, the opera. <laughs> but the story is as profound as it is compelling. As I weave this story, I want you to sit with this question, which we'll discuss at the end. Is this composer's music corrupt? And can we listen to it today? So here's the story. During World War I, a young dispatch rider was mocked for carrying the heaviest knapsack of any German soldier. Most soldiers carried Bibles or paperbacks, but Private Hitler packed a copy of Richard Wagner's opera Tristan. Hitler wrote long stretches of which I knew by heart. So familiar was I with the music that I could hum or whistle all the most important sections, such as only someone can do who knows the work inside out. Although Hitler never succeeded the rank of private in World War I, his indefatigable drive for world dominance, national socialism, and racial cleansing propelled 50 million deaths, 6 million of which were innocent Jews. To unlock the mystery of his motivation, we turn to the man from whom Hitler imbibed the essence of his ideology and practice, the man who called for the final solution of the Jews, going so far as to design the first blueprints for the concentration camps, and the man of whom Hitler wrote, For me, Wagner is a god. His music is my religion. I go to his operas as others go to church. Let's go to the next slide, Liz. Wagner, born in 1813 and living until 1883, is widely known as one of the greatest composers in history, producing operas of mammoth proportion and intricate complexity. For the telling of the story, though, it's important to know that Wagner was first a writer and then later turned to composing. Before winning musical recognition, he published two articles in 1834. The first was on German opera, in which he speculates on the quandary of Germans not producing first-class operas compared to the Italians and French, stating, but a German opera we have not, and for the self-same reason that we own no national drama. We are too intellectual and too much learned to create warm human figures. Wagner saw that the German lack of emotive feeling was a great evil that needed to be rooted out in order for music to advance. His second essay on German music, in it, Wagner deduced that the opera lacked greatness because it lacked connection to the German people's mythological past. With de these deficiencies in German musical form in view, he set out to create an authentic German musical style. He chose the medium of opera to create the German people's universal, cohesive destiny through a deep-seated mythological rediscovery. Keep in mind here what Plato says about the power of choral music. 
Wagner's vision of imprinting national socialism through music gave birth to a new form of music known to us as romantic nationalism, on which all of his forthcoming ideas on aesthetic, political, social, racial, and religious issues hinged. Romantic nationalism was so entrenched in his music that when Hitler unleashed his assault, he is quoted as saying, whoever wants to understand national socialism must know Wagner. In essence, Wagner's romantic nationalism expressed in writing and in music fanned Hitler's national socialism into flame. As a subtle example, in 1940, Hitler produced an anti-Semitic film, The Eternal Jew, that defamed and vilified the Jew. The film used Wagner's music and words to build Hitler's murderous intentions. Wagner believed that the aesthetic future of Germany was necessarily linked to the destiny of the state and its relation to economics, religion, and society. His primary means of implanting romantic nationalist vision was to target not the political or artistic leaders, but the common folk who were united under an aesthetic endeavor of a common experience that would fuse them into a collective force capable only by possessing an aesthetic and political power. It's quite strategic. Romantic nationalism in music met a synthesis of poem, visual, and dramatic arts in Wagner's compositions, the effect of which he described to be, quote, a drama glorified by music in which the folk will one day find itself and every art ennobled and embellished. Wagner drew heavily on mythology, presenting it with subtle impressions and meaning rather than statements of information. As seen in his words, the poet will eventually recognize that by utilizing the spirit to be found in myth, the folk will find its future destiny linked to its assumed mythical past. Wagner was unique in his composition of both the libretto, which is the operatic text, and the melody line, what he called lit motifs, in which each singer or prop had a motif that would be sung whenever they came onto the stage. Further, the use of visual arts in his dramas created colossal sensation for the audience, undergirding the text's meaning. This is very groundbreaking. The operas were quite small and little attended before Wagner came on the scene. So think of Wagner's operas being maybe akin to The Lion King, which was such a huge change for us, or Ben-Hur, you know, like these colossal sensations that suddenly change cultures, change how we see the world because they're so massive. That's what Wagner's operas were. The opera's complex structure produced a hypnotic transformation that Nietzsche described as brutal, artificial, and innocent at the same time. Wagner's wife, Cosima, was his staunch defender, proliferating his romantic nationalism and anti-Semitism. Cosima kept an avid journal of her husband's life, with every few pages riddled by anti-Semitic jargon. On racial cleansing, she wrote, Whether the Jews can ever be redeemed is the question which occupies our thoughts. Their nature condemns them to the world's reality. 
they have profaned Christianity. In 1879, she wrote that deportation may be a solution to the Jews and regarded Wagner's article, Jewry in Music, to institute the struggle. Cosima, who was Franz Liszt's daughter and was much younger than Wagner, would go on to hold great influence over Hitler himself through proofing the text of his Mein Kampf, traveling to America to secure financial support for him, including that of Henry Ford, and influencing her children to worship Hitler. Before leaving the subject of Wagner's writing and going into his actual music, it is necessary to draw out his final solution, a euphemism Hitler used and enacted. Wagner wrote, it is easier for us Germans to achieve this grand solution to the problem of ridding the world of the Jews than for any other nation. And Hitler quickly owned the idea in Mein Kampf, stating, the Jews are fighting unremittedly for domination of the whole world. The only way to get rid of the hand that has us by the throat is by the sword. Wagner's written platform now determined the tone of his art. Again, think of the choral music and its power that Plato warned of. In 1871, Wagner and Cosima fulfilled their lifelong desire to establish a school in Beirut to Germanize the arts and to proliferate his productions through the Beirut Festival. Having established a worldview of romantic nationalism in written form, through which a jealous anti-Semitic poison coursed, Wagner was now ready to unleash his philosophy in the aesthetics. So let's now turn to one of Wagner's operas, The Ring, for proof of his amalgamation of political and aesthetic ideals that had indubitable influence on Hitler. Here's a picture from a recent production of The Ring. The Ring evidences the narcissistic, anti-Semitic, and national socialist worldview he professed. His ideology of the German spirit developed from his unholy alliance with the 12th century myth. Can you put up the next one? The Nibelungen lead. If you guys know myth and I'm pronouncing it wrong, you can correct me. <laughs> I think that's how you say it. The medieval poem has been a source of folklore for many artists, including J.R.R. Tolkien, but medievalists today consider Wagner a poor guide to the interpretation of the myth. Perhaps the reason for this is that he did not have any formal training in literature, or that he added so much to the original myth that the viewers of the ring cannot distinguish myth from Wagnerian thought. With myth, he dramatized the origin of the German people while also giving them a new art form in which the birth of tragedy from the spirit of music became the epoch of opera. In sum, Wagner conveyed a socio-political agenda with psychological and metaphysical realities in music. The Ring, 15 hours long, with 200 individual lead motifs, that's the motif when a new person comes on the stage, is the world's largest opera. Before creating The Ring, Wagner wrote an essay on the Weibelungen, the Gibelins in history, in which he crafted his Superman figure, Siegfried, who, like Jesus, was killed and finally avenged, 
quote, as we today are taking our revenge on the Jews. The ring begins with the creation of the world and the beautiful Rhine maidens guarding gold hidden in the depths of the earth. The opera's villain, Alberich the Nibelung, is a horrid looking man who is described as a dwarf that has been transformed into a frog who feverishly, unrestingly burrows through the bowels of the earth like worms in a dead body. These words are this exact copy of how he describes Jews in the article Jewry in Music. His description of Alberic also includes him having a long nose, a large beard, and black hair. Alberic steals the gold, in addition to the original Nibelungen lead myth, because the man who turns the gold into a ring will be master of the world. However, whoever forges their gold into a ring must forswear love, equating the theft with mankind's fall. Alberich is portrayed as the man whose curse is the cause of loneliness spreading across the world. Once the theft has been accomplished, he enlists the help of his brother Mime to forge the ring of power. You can see his Jewish features there as well. And the remaining musical cycles describe the machinations of the gods, especially of Wotan, to regain the ring. The savior of the world, do you want to go back to Siegfried? The savior of the world is portrayed as Siegfried, the superman, whose sacrificial death cleanses the world of wealth and power, making him into a Christ figure, instituting a new era. In later writing, Wagner called for a return of this Superman who would, quote, slay the dragon that is tormenting mankind. The fate of Mime is the most anti-Semitic image in the work. Wotan challenges Mime to a game of wits and defeats him. And in the final act, Mime dies at the hands of proto-German figures. The opera featured at the Bayreuth Festival as a permanent fixture well beyond Wagner's death in 1883. Hitler faithfully attended the festival from 1923 to 1933 when the audience gave him a standing ovation and Nazi salute. Hitler listened to the ring incessantly while writing Mein Kampf, and his passion for the Wagnerian operas was such that he decorated his office in Berlin with scenes from the ring. When World War II began, Hitler wrote that the sword motif of Wagner's ring rang continuously in his ears, and he felt that he was Siegfried, setting forth to slay the dragons, in his own words. Similarly, Hitler was known to hum Wagnerian motifs during political conversations. Wagner's romantic nationalism, central to the universe with its message of love, death, and the birth of the Superman was embodied by Hitler, who said, quote, Music is the greatest animator of feelings that moves the mind, yet it seems to be the least able to satisfy the intellect. A world of feelings and moods that is difficult to describe in words is revealed in music. This type of expression reached its absolute summit in the works of the great Bayreuth master. These words become all the more shattering with the fact that they were spoken in a speech by Hitler following the Nazi party's celebratory rally in Nuremberg in August 1938 after the first burning of a Jewish synagogue. 
As the war continued, Hitler drew continually on Wagner for inspiration, exclaiming, quote, what joy each of Wagner's works has given me. Wagner's providing the gateway to Hitler's atrocity begs the question, if we, if we can still listen in good conscience to harmonies that incited the Holocaust. If we believe that Wagner's music is inherently evil, we must also ask if we should no longer listen to the music of Chopin and Richard Strauss, also well-known anti-Semitists. However, these composers did not let their personal beliefs poison the essence of their music. That is, they did not propitiate their beliefs through music, in contrast to Wagner, who composed music to propel his virulent agenda. To tease out the complexity of Wagner in current culture, we must also explore his music in Israel and in his be beloved Beirut. Today, Wagner's music is banned in Israel. No doubt for reasons such as those said by a Holocaust survivor, how can you play that? I saw my family take it to the gas chambers to the sound of Wagner's overtures. Why should I have to listen to that? However, in 1983, the Bay Festival featured the ring for the first time again. And the three conductors were all Jewish a symbol of their indomitable spirit when you consider that only one Jew from Beirut survived the Holocaust. Conflictingly, Wagner's music has brought tremendous sustenance to countless people, including another boy who survived World War I through Wagner's music and who recalled Wagner's operas as influential in his awakening to joy and desire. This boy later became a Christian and gave the world some of the greatest pieces of literature in the 20th century, including the Chronicles of Narnia and the Space Trilogy. C.S. Lewis's admiration of Wagner problematizes our desire to rid the world of Wagner's influence while holding the tension of discerning the consequences of commingling ideologies with aesthetics. Nietzsche himself saw his former friend Wagner as dangerous and yet indispensable to philosophy, concluding, he makes sick whatever he touches. He has made music sick. As we come around to the beginning of where we started, we see that Wagner did not just use music for a vehicle to propel his political agenda, but that his music was deeply entrenched in an aesthetic philosophy that incarnated romantic nationalism. The evidence of Wagner first writing before composing and then creating the Beirut festival to thrust his race objective compels me to conclude that Wagner's music cannot be entirely separated from his philosophy. Mere time waited for Wagner's ideas to be picked up like a ring of power and thrust into the world. Mythology moved to ideology and met reality when Hitler wore the ring and unfurled the greatest evil humanity has ever known. 
Wagner is cast in history as a man of beguiling complexity and genius. His intricate music haunts contemporary society with auditory reminders of the Holocaust, much as images from Ostwich slay our souls with their bleak reality. Wagner's genius also prods contemporary composers to understand the intent of their art, not just for themselves, but for eager understudies who turn to their music for inspiration, solace, and direction. Wagner equally stands as a warning to naive artists who have not taken the time to understand their own worldview and yet inescapably imprint it on their work. Perhaps music itself will redeem Wagner's sickening influence through composers who are earnest to take back the wasteland by embodying the true, the beautiful, and the good in their music, while keeping in time with the song of resilience that rose from the death camps of the, on the heartstrings of the Holocaust for survivors who will never let us forget. So what does it mean to embody music? How do we live into this tension of seeing heaven coming down to earth, even in the tangible and audible and succulent reality of music? <laughs> and what do we do with figures like Wagner, who manipulated something so powerful and so beautiful and so good as music's aesthetic freedom and didactic power, to put forward an agenda of romantic nationalism that would thrust the world into the worst bloodbath history has known. One professor of mine was resigned in her determination that Wagner's music is irreducibly diabolical and said that she would never play it in her home. But what of Lewis? What of those Jewish conductors? And so I leave you to answer the question for yourself. Is Wagner's music free? And if it is in shackles, can it and will it ultimately be freed? Thank you. So we can open up for discussion if you guys have any comments or questions that you want to ask Lydia. Thank you, Lydia. Mm -hmm. Thank you. In the Plato section, you early on you said something about um, music coming before language. Can you expand on that? That's a good question, and that uh, I got from Ian McKilchrist, the Master and His Emissary. Uh, I don't know if you guys have that book here. Uh, it's a great the book is a great tell a tale of um, the right brain and the left brain and how they are in conflict with one another. And so in that, he is, uh, Ian McGilchrist is a, is a psychiatrist, and he sees the evolutionary um, development as the first human singing before they developed language. <coughs> yeah, it's interesting when you see in, in, a, in a lot of, um, like in Lewis and in Tolkien, both that singing is such an important part of the creation. Yeah. Um, story. Yeah. It seems to be something very um, instinctive about that. Yeah. Us. That's what I love about that um, verse in Job that I um, recalled in the lecture. You know, morning stars sang together mm -hmm. into order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
I'm kind of digging around for something, but I can't remember it well enough um, to clearly say it. I, it was either Plato or Aristotle, but it must have been Aristotle because it seemed like Plato was pretty pro-music. And, I, and, I, and it could also even be theater, but I think that it was music that Aristotle said was like too dangerous because it played on people's emotions um, yeah. and couldn't be kind of guided enough. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with that? I think it's Aristotle, not Plato. Yeah. But you yeah. see even Wagner talking about that, or Hitler talking about that, if music is so emotional and yet, yeah. well, it's powerful. Right, right. So he didn't want it in the Republic because he thought it was yeah, too dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's really, it's really interesting what you bring up about the arts because, well, in the example of music, because it, it does have so much power and you see that with propaganda too in other forms, even like posters and yeah. all of these things they play on like subconscious um, illusions and uh, in a much stronger way than just to tell you like Jews are bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it can it can create th this image to be feared or whatever or something to to stand for. Um, and so yeah, so one option might be to just get rid of the arts altogether. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And you can only read everything in a tract instead. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I think that sometimes that we can um, in the church have that response yeah. toward art as well. Like, oh, it's it leaves too much in the nebulous area, like for interpretation. And what if people misinterpret it and or worship it? Um, or worship or worship it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Too, so. With the um, yeah, what do you call in the Greek Orthodox Church in the Catholic Church of the what are they called? Icons. Yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah. they see it as praying through them, not yeah. to them. You're praying through. But that's where the Protestants have a real problem with that, right. which is, is idolatry for them. Right, right yeah. after the Reformation, that was, or mm -hmm. during the Reformation, that was really yeah. difficult. Yeah. It was interesting on that, I, when I was at the Swiss Libri, I went to Calvin's Cathedral in Geneva, mm -hmm. and I'd done a little bit of just like walking around, touring, and, and other places in Europe while I was at Libri, and it was fascinating to go into Calvin's church because it looked like quite literally it looked like something that had its eyes plucked out mm. because it was just completely stark there was no art or anything in it and when you walk especially in, in italian catholic churches it's just like gaudy right <laughs> it's filled yeah, with it's art and all of this right and calvin's is just whoa like there's nothing in it it's kind of a fascinating contrast um as we're talking about like language and music music like I'm just curious is there also a framework because as much as this question is still very open right now um, I still feel like we're all getting a sense of like the morality um, mm -hmm. of what's being portrayed through this kind of music mm -hmm. but the minute there are no lyrics mm -hmm. the minute there's no operatic story mm -hmm. it's just a piece of music mm -hmm. I find it's just like I don't know what to do with it, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, I just feel. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Is that not, not okay? How much of it is like my own sinful nature of feeling a certain way or not feeling a certain way? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I remember speaking to um, a fellow student when I was in university about music and talking about like Bach and so many people kind of put him on a certain level, yeah. um, even with his faith. And he was just, my yeah, this person at my school was just saying, oh, and then some people use his music to summon demons. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> um, so just even those things where I was like, oh, I thought that was safe. Um, but there's so much tied into that yeah. um, in terms of our own 
creature? I think it's a huge question of if if you separate the choral, is Wagner's music bad? That's a great question. Um, and with the choral picking up on Bach, actually, this is another discussion point. I this summer I read um, John Elliot Gardner. He's a one of the greatest conductors alive today, and he wrote this beautiful book on Bach called Music in the Castle of Heaven, and. Um, it's basically just looking at all of Bach's writings and he's um, structurally ana analyzing them all. And of course, Bach is kind of like Wagner. He has an agenda and he's putting in Christian theology. And so Gardner speculates, he's not a Christian, and he speculates kind of on the same question, but from a different view, different angle, he's saying is Bach's music going to influence people to become Christian? <laughs> <laughs> And, or can we separate Bach from his theology, you know? And Gardner asked the exact same problematizing question, just with a different end in mind. Something that comes to mind with this question um, is, I guess I've always seen music as being subjective, that it's incapable of being untied from a person's philosophy or mm -hmm. what they're bringing to the music. So I think... For me, when you ask a question like that, I think it's, I think you have to look at both together. You have to see um, the musician's philosophy behind why they were making that music, mm -hmm. even if it's unintended or they weren't even aware of their own philosophy or intention. Because I feel like all music has something behind it. Mm -hmm. So for me, when you ask a question like that, I think, yes, if we know that that like those were his intentions, then I don't think you can untie it. Mm. But yeah, I think there's always a subjective element to music that is a part of our understanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that goes with the discussion of art in general, of to be an artist, you put yourself out there, and then once, once, you, once the painting is hung on the wall, mm -hmm. you don't have control of it anymore and people's interpretation of it is theirs and you can't manipulate that mm -hmm. you can't control it um, but if you're putting it out like Wagner with a very specific this is what I want you to think and believe mm. yeah right and I, I've had a lot of conversations about the difference between like art and propaganda yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like propaganda is trying to narrow you down to think this one specific thing yeah whereas like art Art ideally is more of an invitation to yes. a larger reality yes. mm -hmm. um, and, and involves that contribution from the audience. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, but it's hard with, with something like Wagner where it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of really beautiful inspirational mm -hmm. things and you don't necessarily have that feeling that you're being mm -hmm. narrowed down. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I don't know, is it propaganda? Like, I'd be interested to hear, is it propaganda? Is, mm -hmm. is Wagner propaganda? Yeah. yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I'll answer the, or I'll speak to that question, but I just want to tag back to what you're saying with putting music out there and then you're not sure if, how people are going to interpret it. Debussy, Claude Debussy, he's a 20th century uh, composer, and with a lot of his compositions, which are very romantic, impressionistic, um, his, all of his preludes, he wrote the prelude and he didn't put the title of the piece until the end because he didn't want the listener to have a preconceived notion of what the piece was about. 
So, for example, his really famous piece, The Sunken Cathedral, which is built off of the legend of, of yeast, where the cathedral, every hundred years, this massive glass cathedral, rises up from the ocean to remind people of their sins, and then sinks back down into the sea. His whole prelude, The Sunken Cathedral, tells that story. And yet he puts the name, The Sunken Cathedral, at the end, because maybe you're going to hear something totally different. Which is interesting. With Wagner's lyrics, I think that's such a key thing. And you can even ask, you know, I think it's funny questions. Okay, it's in German. I don't speak German. If I listen to it, will it be subconsciously uh, imprinted on me somehow? Uh, a lot of his um, grandchildren actually took great pains to um, edit the operas. And they've tried really hard to take out some of the Semitic jargon and thrust. I'm not uh, enough of an expert in Wagner's operas to know if that's the only thing that's used now, or do we use his original scores and how anti and how um, how much of the anti-Semitism has been taken out. But it's worth noting that his um, his for his children and grandchildren um, wanted to change this. That's what I was thinking when you had the the photo up there from, as you mentioned, a recent production, I thought, I wonder mm -hmm. not only how much is it the same, but how are people interpreting it differently than yeah. they did before? Yeah. Um, which, you know, to me gives a sense of the music um, having a, a mind of its own, whether that's true freedom or not, in that, yes, he had a purpose in it, and then it was going to be interpreted however people chose to interpret it then which might be changed from the interpretation of how they're going to interpret mm -hmm. it now. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. even though there is some, there was some definite clear purpose and some um, subjective subjectivity that he put into it, um, it doesn't necessarily influence how everybody is going to take it in, as, as evidenced by C.S. Lewis's interpretation mm -hmm. of it. Um, so I think that there is still, like I just don't think it can fully be tied down, despite the very purposeful way in which it was written. And, and do you think it has more impact because of also like us knowing that it was tied to Hitler? You know, like, like say it wasn't, um, say his music never did impact that figure, you know, and, and, and it didn't have that. Like I think, I don't know, I'm sort of wrestling with that, that um, is, it, is part of the concern too that, um, you know, you mentioning how much an impact it had over Hitler's life and influencing mm -hmm. his, you know, terrible, like, murderous um, thoughts and, and, and actions and what he, um, you know, what the Nazi um, regime did. Is that, is that the concern too? Is it, mm -hmm. is it that we're, it's sort of a cause and action? Yeah. Because if that's what we're doing, then that can make m music quite scary. Yeah. yeah. Am I taking away your innocence? Yeah. If you love Wagner and you don't know anything about Hitler. Yeah. Or am I enlightening you? <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, it's sort of like this cause and effect. I don't, just because for Hitler it was, yeah, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But it doesn't seem very vague for him. Like the writings, you were mm -hmm. talking about the writings mm -hmm. like seemed, it wasn't like a, seems even strong, just as strong as mm -hmm. some of 
what Hitler was expressing, it came straight from him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, it, it's, I think you have to be more careful when there is words involved. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking last week, David spoke on video games mm -hmm. and as art and in terms of a Christian life. And you talked about, David, about Schaefer talked about the three ways to, the content was the third way to look at the art, mm. the artist, but the first two were? Uh, the first two were technical excellence and validity. Mm -hmm. Validity being, um, is what, what is being presented here, does that match up with what the artist actually believes, mm. or are they being inconsistent? So like to me this validity, so there's the technicality and the validity that is very clear with Wagner. Mm -hmm. um, he was probably technically excellent, and his philosophy matched up with his beliefs. And so you, you, you were saying that when you play video games, you you would definitely tie it to philosophy because there was like even some talk about, I don't know, Hegel and I don't know, it was like in the video games. Yeah. And so there was definite like, this is evil and I choose not to engage with this. And so I feel like this is very similar. It's not just like a depressing, um, depressing classical piece that you don't have any words to, you know, like, um, mm -hmm. Which, yeah, that could be soul-sucking, too, or whatever you want to say. Like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe you don't want to listen to really depressing music, whatever, mm -hmm. whether it has lyrics or not. But I just like those three, the technical, the validity, which is an awkward word for me to remember, but, and then the, con the, the content. Yeah. And so I think the content is... Can you comment on that with regard to Plato that sees music needing to access clear delineation, correct copying, and the moral value? Do you think that's connected at all with your argument for video games? Um, say those again. Plato sees music as needing to access three points, clear delineation, correct copying, and the moral value of the representation. Uh, so clear delineation is that excellence. Excellence. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, th I, th I think there are definite parallels between those things. Um, I hadn't. I didn't know. It was, it's very entirely possible that Schaefer just took those and rolled with them in, in his own way. With his Platonic thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, this is like a super interesting question to me um, about morality and art. And Oscar Wilde basically said that the artist has no responsibility to society. Like when mm -hmm. they're creating art, their, mm -hmm. their responsibility sort of ceases. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people think about artists, especially if you're very talented. Like there's no kind of social responsibility or morality that you have to um, have. And I think that on a Christian worldview, you, you be serving people <laughs> just like anyone else. So you have you do have a responsibility like anyone else. Um, but yeah, I'm just trying to think of examples where <laughs> I've encountered something really beautiful in art and and also like rejected it in a certain way. Like mm -hmm. I was reading uh, uh, the D. H. Lawrence book um, in the winter, and the writing was like super beautiful, <laughs> um, and I and the plot was like 
amazing and I really wanted to keep reading, but it was like so dark mm -hmm. and I was like, I can't, I like can't read this. Mm -hmm. I knew it was affecting me and mm -hmm. I just like fundamentally didn't agree with mm -hmm. it. Um, and I've read other books that I don't agree with, <laughs> lots mm -hmm. of other books that I don't agree with, parts of it. Um, but I could say like, yeah, this is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, like this is really well written. But I could also critique the worldview and be like, okay, it's <laughs> not for me. And also because I knew that I was just being too affected by it. Mm -hmm. So there's other things I can read that I disagree with, and I'm just like, it's like it's not changing me really. Um, but that takes like a high level of discernment. It's the discernment. You're not subconsciously taking it in. Yeah. Um, but I really. <laughs> I actually threw it into the fire. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I will keep reading this book unless I throw it into the fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's are kind you, of extreme. Are you familiar with any of you guys? I can't remember. We could Google it. But this artist, and he does the um, piece of art called Piss Christ. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember his name, but I know What's that. What's that? It's this. Do you want to explain it? Uh, it's like a crucifix in a jar in urine. In urine. Yeah. And he's not a Christian. And so oh, wow. the question to Christianity and to humanity is, is he pissing on Christ? Mm -hmm. Or is he getting at something very deep about the suffering Christ mm -hmm. who hanging on the cross has to pee publicly in front of everybody, mm -hmm. you know, and everything gushing out from him. Is this just him embodying for us the suffering of Christ in a beautiful way? It's kind of up for debate. <laughs> I guess, yeah, this sort of touches on freedom of expression, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what is good art or what is bad art or, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. You have yeah. a question or a comment. I'm, I'm just wondering, music is basically notes that represent sounds. If, if there are no words, if we know nothing about the composer, um, do the sounds that Wagner's music produce mm -hmm. elicit evilness mm -hmm. in themselves? Mm -hmm. um, I think that may be the deeper question, mm -hmm. which is unfortunately even more subjective <laughs> to answer. Mm -hmm. um, because some of those sounds are very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Some elicit yearning. Some elicit sadness. Mm -hmm. Some are heroic um, sounds. Um, none of those things are evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder. Mm -hmm. And even if they are dark, mm -hmm. What, remember what Bart says about yeah. the dark and the light intermixing, mm -hmm. and this is what God calls good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole element of Lucifer being the angel of music, like the, in his place with music before the fall, and how, what has he taken with him, mm -hmm. and, and how... Is that infiltrating? How does he use that? To what extent does he use that? He's a deceiver. He's subtle, you know. Mm -hmm. I know with my teens, especially, it, it came up about, I don't even listen to the lyrics. I just like the sound. Yeah. You know, I just like the beat. It's not a problem. <laughs> Is it or isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
that's where the church fathers saw the power of choral music and really took Plato at his word and were like, okay, we're going to, like, they, they create the formal church structure of a service and, like, 50% of it is singing. And they're doing that really intentionally by saying it is both calming the spirit and the soul because it's music just on its own, but then the words as well, we can teach so much, you know, and... So true. Yeah. Yeah. So it can be used, I think, for ill, and we have to be discerning in that. Does that mean, I will never listen to any rap music? Right. No, uh, what's attention to hold? <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I was thinking about this in terms of pop music, popular yeah. music, and yeah. just like how much is focused on sex, you know, yeah. and, and the distortion of sex. Um, yeah. Um, not anything re even remotely close to yeah. um, how sex should be valued and viewed and um, upheld. And so, yeah, I I feel like there's so much more oppression in that today. Like, people are really not going to be probably engaging with the same art forms today. Um, yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you've thought about it in terms of... I have this old friend of mine, he's like in his 90s, and he's a World War II vet, and he loves to sing, and we were doing some music a while ago uh, that he was going to sing, and so I was just accompanying him, and it's like these beautiful old love songs from the 40s and 50s, <laughs> and he made this interesting comment to me. He said, my great-grandchildren hear me sing these songs, and they say, Papa, your music is all about love. Our music is all about death and drugs. And they just comment that to him, you know, and I think, wow, what do we do with that? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that art has such a power because, and perhaps the vocation of the artist is to express where culture is at. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a prophetic voice, but a lot of times I think it's, you know, if we're doing well, it's going to show up in its art. If we're on the brink of disaster, think of the Guernica, right? Mm -hmm. That's powerful um, that you can just express it. So, when, what do we do with that? Because we can, we can decry till we're blue in the face how music is all about drugs and death and dying and sex today. Um, is there a, is there a different answer though? Particularly if for for us who bear the image of Christ, I think um, I don't know if you guys know the work uh, by Andy Crouch, culture making. Mm -hmm. He makes the whole argument that. You don't change culture, you make culture. And that's what's going to change culture, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we need musicians and artists and poets and politicians creating something. Um, I think that's, it's a, it's a slow, long, long game view in mind, but that's where it comes down to, I think, for us. Mm -hmm. I was thinking um, pop music, like, there's this... Um, yeah, just this tradition in pop music to cover songs, to um, sample songs in hip-hop. And it's just interesting to me because I think sometimes there are songs that... Um, so Nine Inch Nails had a song called Hurt, and um, Johnny Cash covered it, and he changed one word. Mm. Um, and the way he covered it um, just com like pretty much changed the meaning of the song. And mm. it's interesting because you know the, the f original version is a very depressing, yeah. hopeless... Um, 
And then so just even just looking at Faulkner and saying, like, is there a way to redeem it? I don't know, maybe his grandkids changing lyrics, maybe somebody sampling it in a certain way that kind of, like, turns it on its head. I don't know, like, mm -hmm. um, I leave it to musicians who are more creative um, in actually doing that, mm -hmm. but yeah. Here's another question I want to put to you guys with relation to Wagner. Because we could take my one teacher's uh, viewpoint that it's diabolical and she'll never listen to it in her home. But how does that erase history? Or does that erase history? Uh, would a more wise approach be to recognize and to say, okay, we need to see Wagner for who he is. Um, but it helps us never forget. Um, the Holocaust, which is perhaps the best thing we can do for the Jews, right? Um, but it takes work. We can't just be simplistic or um, naive about Wagner. And I think it's easier for us non-German speakers mm -hmm. to just be playing it and thinking mm -hmm. we can think our way beyond the possible negative implications, but for Germans to be hearing that. Or Would it bring up shame for them, I wonder? Yeah. Is it played? I, I've never heard mm -hmm. music before. Is it mm -hmm. played? Like, would you hear it on CBC, CBC radio? radio? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, maybe I've heard it then. I oh, don't yeah. Know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, it, yeah. It's, so, it's, a, it's a funny thing, because again, is it your taste? Like, I don't like opera, so yeah, I listen to it to, to prepare for the lecture. <laughs> going to have any relevance today, then it's not just a matter of uh, dry facts from the past. Mm. It's a matter of what we can learn from it and how we can make our lives, our world, a better place because of our knowledge of yes. it. So mm -hmm. covering the song and changing a word that flips it around from being negative to having some positive aspects is learning from the past and adapting and saying I can make this better um, and maybe that is a springboard for a head like the rap music if I overheard the conversation you had uh, sure, over yeah. the meal um, to me uh, knowing nothing about rap mm. is a negative you were indicating no 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 it is a genre that can be used in today's culture so we can learn from the past and we can go onwards and upwards that's very wise comments i think there's another thing we could problematize <laughs> with just the question of okay take the the words out is wagner's music evil or Maybe, let's, let's just keep Wagner here for a moment, is rap music evil without the words? Or is heavy metal, rock, something you shouldn't listen to? There was a, actually, there was, it's a funny study and I don't know what to think of it. Guys, I don't actually agree. But they did this study with these greenhouses and they had classical music playing in one and then they had heavy metal playing in the other and like the, the study goes that the heavy metal wilted and the classical flourished <laughs> so you should only listen to classical music because your brain will flourish I'm like seriously I think I say seriously because when Bach came out and produced his music it was so it was like 
for us would be the heaviest of rap, heavy metal music ever because it was so different from what they were used to. And it was wild and free and dramatic and loud. And everybody like criticized it as the worst thing possible to be in our churches and public, you know? And I was like, we do the same thing today, just with different forms of music. I, I think I kind of lean more on the side of uh, no, all music is free and um, can be good. I'm leaving out the choral part, you know. And you're leaving out intention? So if it's, okay, so let's leave out the choral altogether. There's Christian rap and there's non-Christian rap. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, let's, let's leave out the rap. Let's, let's keep out <laughs> anything choral because that's hard to deal with. If it's just instrumental, can we can we listen to anything and everything? We don't have to analyze their morality, the morality of the musicians who made yeah. it. Yeah, it's I just. think I think yes. I think I think ultimately it comes down to the listener's responsibility too, mm -hmm. and sort of like I, maybe not everyone understands the impact of music on them, mm -hmm. but I think. Yeah, I think if you see that a certain piece of music or something is influencing your emotions or your emotional state in a certain way, then I think it's okay. Similar to what you were saying, Liz, then maybe this isn't good for me. But, um, yeah, I would really advocate for the listener's <coughs> responsibility um, and the power that they have and what they choose to listen to or not. Because I think... You know, there is certain, like, really heavy rock music that I know with certain um, school shootings that happened in the States. Like, there were, there's news about that. There was certain music that was listened to, and is there a direct uh, association with that to what um, the crimes were committed? I think you can't take away a person's responsibility yeah. themselves. Yeah. And I think that's a key part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and same with, you know, um, going back to Nazi Germany. Ultimately, like, people have a choice in what they do. Yeah. Music is incredibly powerful, but they have a choice whether they do murderous acts or not. So I think if I'm hearing you, you would come out and say music is free. I, I do think it is. It's a person's yeah. agency, like their agency. Their agency, their, 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 own, their own freedom as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I think I think of it as like a conversation, kind of like us. Mm -hmm. Like it's like yeah. when you when you talk to anyone, you're listening for what they're saying, and you're digesting it yourself, and you choose how to respond. Um, and they have an intention, but you don't have to agree with them, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can sort through it. You know, um, is that what the Jewish conductors are doing? Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I don't think everybody has the same level of ability to <laughs> converse either. So that's like children and video games or certain kinds of music or whatever, like mm -hmm. they have less ability to discern. So I think like, I don't know, and I don't know if that extends to other <laughs> populations or whatever, um, because I think some populations are more susceptible to propaganda as well. So, um, and uh, yeah, like if people aren't educated about like what's mm -hmm. actually going on underneath the surface, mm -hmm. um, then I don't more dangerous so <laughs> I was at one thing I was thinking about with this I, I gave a lecture on 
Molly Carr in the summer, and th- I don't, some of you probably know this, but there's a painting, she did a famous one of a, like a white church surrounded mm-hmm. by heavy kind of sculptural looking forest, and uh, it's called Indian Church was the original title, and the, the government actually, I think, no, it wasn't the government, the art gallery changed the title, it's like art gallery, 